our trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hello there and welcome to the show. Thank you for joining a growing congregation of wrong thinkers. More important than it sounds, by the way, we need people who are capable of thinking outside the box, questioning the narrative, standing firm for truth and light, especially when everybody else seems to be headed uh, right off the cliff. By the way, I'm not saying that that in a sense that uh, we're so much better than them. Ha! They're so dumb. They're so evil. No, they're just a lot of people who, for whatever reason, um, their blinders will not permit them to question what's going on around them. And I get it. I think you probably do, too. When, when we look around, we really take a, a good, hard look at what's happening. There's, there's a lot of painful stuff. <laughs> there's a lot of stuff taking place that I don't really want to see. But I'd rather know what's going on. I'd rather be doing my best to be a source, a source of truth and light in a time where, where people are kind of losing their grip on reality. I suspect that's why you listen to this program and and why there are other programs like this. We're all just doing our part to try to keep that light going in spite of the gathering darkness. Our program is brought to you in part today by a number of great sponsors, including MonticelloCollege.org, also uh, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, and LifesavingFood.com. In fact, I saw something here I wanted to just point out to you real quick. They have a number of different packages, a lot of different uh, ways you can go about building up your food storage. This one I thought was especially cool. It's a seven-day emergency dry bag. Now, this is $99.99, but I think of what my friends in central and southern Utah have been going through the last few weeks with flooding. I mean, they, they had a terrible, terrible drought going on, prayed for rain. Somebody must have found the right combination because, boy, have they got rain. But uh, how cool would it be to have a ready-grab bag, 60 servings of uh, different entree meals, ready to go, and in a dry bag? If the bag gets wet, you're still okay. You're not out, to, you're not out these emergency supplies. Anyway, you can check it out for yourself. It's at lifesavingfood.com. If you choose to order from them, just mention my last name, Hyde, as your checkout coupon code. They'll knock 10% off your purchase. That's a good deal. All right, let's dive right in. And I've got a great place to start today. The law of the harvest. You probably heard of this, right? That's the one that says you reap what you sow. Now, unfortunately, this can be kind of a tough law because if we are sowing things that are, um, shall we just say, not good, then that's probably what we're going to reap. And in the case of our societal fixation on wokeness, what we're finding is that we have elected almost incomprehensively incompetent leaders. Got a great article here from Robert Weiss. This is from intellectualtakeout.org, talking about how the Taliban may have just provided us with a Sputnik moment for wokeness. So let's start by reminding everyone what the Sputnik moment was. Back in 1957, the supposedly backward Soviet Union launched a satellite into orbit and the threat of Soviet rockets became real for millions of Americans. 
Now, fortunately, Sputnik galvanized a massive American response, and, of course, we soon caught up with and overtook the Soviets. Robert Weiss says, Conceivably, the current collapse of our Afghanistan adventure might be a similar Sputnik moment, sounding an alarm bell to the nation, particularly helpful in killing wokeness. He says much depends, of course, on how the mainstream media spins events in Afghanistan. Clearly, the biggest takeaway is that brute force and trillions of dollars cannot transform a culture. All the king's men and all the king's horses could not make the Afghan people accept our vision of sexual equality, our definition of the rule of law, and our admiration for the virtues of democracy. Nor did our intelligence services know what was occurring there. So he says it's more than just a little ironic that a nation that prides itself on being so multicultural and attuned to satisfying popular preferences failed to respect the culture of the Afghan people. And if I can just add this as an aside, I think we were misguided as a nation. Going in there and staying there for 20 years, what did we think was going to happen? Well, we're going to set these people up for a first world democracy and... Yeah, how are we going to do that? Are we just going to cut and paste whatever we're doing here? Ought to work for them? I only say this because I, I've never been to Afghanistan. I know people who've lived there, taught there, worked among the people. It's a very different culture. It's a tribal culture. Cut and paste is not going to cut it. So, you know, they're patient people too, as other empires have learned before us. The British and, uh, of course, the Russians and Trying to think who maybe the Romans before that. I don't know. Robert Weiss says there are clear parallels here with transforming segments of American society. He says we've spent hundreds of billions, perhaps even trillions, to transform black-dominated inner cities, and the failure of this project is patently obvious. No matter how many civil rights laws we passed, how hard we pun- we punished those who resisted, but in Afghanistan, as in Afghanistan, he says, there's just not much to show for the effort. One need only drive through downtown Baltimore or Jackson, Mississippi or Newark or New Jersey or many other majority black cities to see disappointing outcomes. And the same geniuses who insisted that empowerment zones uh, with generous tax incentives could bring well-paying jobs to these slums might be equally guilty of convincing the U.S. that a few billion for minor projects could quickly modernize the Afghan economy. Meanwhile, he points out what has happened to all the 1960s uh, public housing guaranteed to uplift residents. Alas, the projects which encouraged, encouraged violent gangs and drug dealers are now being demolished. Worse has been the sad effort to fix the root causes of black poverty. Billions have been invested in schools, but test scores remain stagnant. In fact, the futility of this ill-advised experiment is demonstrated by today's embrace of cosmetic solutions as if social promotions will improve learning. Equally ineffectual have been the attempts to reduce crime via fixing the underlying conditions, supposedly breeding criminality. Again, billions spent on social engineering to no avail, as the recent crime epidemic demonstrates. Robert Weiss says, Common to both the Afghanistan debacle and our domestic fiascos is weapons-grade incompetence. Neither the Ivy League-credentialed poverty warriors of the 1960s nor the metal-bedecked generals of the early 21st century could do their jobs. Their optimistic pronouncements were merely a triumph of cheerful PR and a tool for opening the government's money spigot. Only the optics, not success and failures of foreign and domestic interventions, differ. Rather, Also, he says, absent in both instances 
is any admission that the problem is intractable. Nobody would admit the U.S. government could never transform Afghan poppy growers into Iowa-esque soybean farmers. Just as few admit that the government cannot pacify crime-plagued inner-city schools. Blame for repeated failure will instead be put on a few unlucky flunkies. State Department functionaries who funded programs to build democracy among nomadic goat herders will move on to the next project, perhaps helping Saudi women choose their personal pronouns. Oh, that one stung. Hopefully, however, deeper questions may soon be raised about America's bumblers. Specifically, has America's, has America's obsession with race and gender created a governing class of incompetence? Particularly important is on how woke ideology shapes those in charge. Now, aspiring system functionaries compete with rivals based on wokeness, not personal and professional qualities. For example, generals who define their mission as rooting out white supremacy, not winning wars. (laughs) School administrators who ignore what teachers know in favor of hiring teachers who look like their students and know little about the three R's. Robert Weiss says, if this Sputnik moment arrives and wokeness goes into history's dustbin, let's give a tip of the hat to the Taliban for opening our eyes. Let these government bunglers flee to to their office building rooftops where helicopters will evacuate them to a land where they will never be heard from again. Okay, a guy can dream. But he does have a point. The ideology, the cultural Marxism that has been slowly, slowly threading its way through our society, it's, it's ever-present in the leadership that we see. And this is actually not just true at the federal level. This is true at the state level and even at the local level in many examples. I mean, people in southern Utah were absolutely aghast last year. And I'm talking, you know, small town, you know, St. George. Okay, maybe it's not small town, but small city, St. George, to see their police chief and their mayor out there taking a knee with Black Lives Matters trying to appease the woke crowd. I guess it's never been more apparent that uh, if there was ever a time to to own your own worldview and not try to ride on the coattails of whoever seems to have the strongest ideological mo- movement at the moment, this is that time. The only thing I can tell you is be prepared because the chances are you're going to find yourself standing alone probably quite often. And that can be uncomfortable. But somebody has to break the illusion of consensus, and it might as well be you and me. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I would like to invite you to please visit my website, thebrianhydeshow.com. If you haven't been there in a while, you will notice the site has undergone a bit of a makeover. Cleaner, leaner. I'm also pulling together. We're, we're almost ready to, to hit the, the send button on uh, a, a membership option for those who want to uh, become regular supporters of this program. I'm excited. This is going to, it'll include some fun extras for those of you who become uh, regular supporters, become members. And, uh, and I'm very, very happy for the help that I've received on this from my friend Kendall. He has been just a godsend. 
And of course, you can also check out my daily show notes. Every episode that I produce, I also have show notes to go along with it with links to the various articles that I'm referencing or the various personalities who I'm interviewing. These are a treasure trove of information. And if you're really serious about, you know, looking into things, studying them, doing your own research, doing your own diligence, you'll find plenty of resources available in there for wrong thinkers like yourself. So I saw a thing the other day, I guess this was yesterday, and it said something about uh, having a positive attitude isn't about uh, just pretending that everything is good. It's more about trying to find the good in everything. Do you understand that distinction? That makes sense. It did to me. I thought, you know, it isn't. It's, just, it's not the Pollyanna. Look, I've got rose-colored glasses. On. Everything is beautiful. This is fine as the house burns down around you. What's interesting, though, is we are getting an object lesson in unintended consequences. And so it's kind of a painful lesson, but I'm grateful that we're getting it. And especially the unintended consequences, thanks to various COVID mandates being enforced by employers, being enforced by the state. John Miltimore has an excellent piece on the massive nurse shortage that's hitting Houston, which coincidentally comes after more than 150 nurses and healthcare workers were fired for being unvaccinated. Miltimore writes, Jennifer Bridges knew what was coming when her director at Houston Methodist Hospital called her up in June to inquire about her vaccination status. Now, Bridges, a 39-year-old registered nurse, responded absolutely not when asked if she was vaccinated or had made an effort to get vaccinated. She was terminated on the spot. Bridges, age 39, told CBS News, we all knew we were getting fired. We knew unless we took that shot to come back, we were getting fired today. There was no ifs, ands, or buts. She was one of more than 150 hospital workers fired by Houston Methodist Hospital. Kara Shepard, a labor and delivery nurse who joined Bridges and other workers in an unsuccessful lawsuit, said all last year through the COVID pandemic, we came to work and did our jobs. We did what we were asked. This year, we're basically told we're disposable. It is, an, it is very interesting, by the way, what a difference a year makes. I got a little bit tired of the, um, what I thought were kind of self-serving TikTok dance videos that various nurses and emergency departments were doing. I mean, I'm not trying to pass judgment. I'm just saying there came a point where it's like, okay, okay, we get it. We get it, you know. But they were doing some truly heroic stuff. And yet this year... Those same people who were working and you know taking care of the sick, man, out the door you go if you don't toe the line of what is being demanded by officialdom. So that seems, uh, seems kind of inconsistent to me. Now, John Miltimore says Shepard and her colleagues may be disposable in the eyes of hospital administrators, but they're perhaps not as easily replaced as she or Houston Methodist thought. Two months after firing unvaccinated hospital staff, Methodist, I'm sorry, Houston Methodist is one of several area hospitals now experiencing, are you ready for this, a severe shortage of medical personnel. How could this have happened? Media reports say hospitals have reached a breaking point because of a flood of COVID-19 cases. In an editorial published Tuesday, the Houston Chronicle said the 25-county hospital area that includes Houston had more patients in hospital beds, that's more than 2,700, than at any point in 2021. News reports make it clear. 
hospitals are struggling to keep up. A local news station says medical tents have been erected outside Lyndon B. Johnson Hospital, but are vacant because of a shortage of nurses. Please send help now, said Dr. George Williams, chief ICU medical officer for LBJ Hospital. Meanwhile, most media reports are focusing on uh, LBJ Hospital, but reports also make it clear that other hospitals, including Houston Methodist, are are experiencing similar struggles. The Houston Chronicle says Harris Health System, which includes LBJ, is short some 250 nurses. While the University of Texas Medical Branch has requested an additional 100 nurses to help address staff shortages at four hospitals. Baylor St. Luke's Medical Center, a private Houston hospital, jointly owned by Baylor College and a local health care system, said the hospital is definitely being impacted by the nurse shortage. As for Houston Methodist, well, the hospital's reportedly struggling as well, though they've yet to admit it publicly. Yeah, I wonder why. An internal memo at Houston Methodist Hospital said it is struggling with staffing as the numbers of our COVID-19 patients rise, says the Chronicle. Public officials are scrambling to address the shortage, which has created a massive patient backlog throughout the Houston area. More than a week ago, Texas Governor Greg Abbott requested out-of-state assistance for the statewide crisis, including 2,500 out-of-state nurses. LBJ Hospital officials said those nurses have not yet arrived. Now, the metro-wide shortage of nurses reportedly came to light when an ER doctor emailed a state senator about the dire situation in hospitals. That physician wrote, The combined increase in volume from COVID and existing normal volume and nursing shortage have made this a terrible disaster at every ER and hospital in the city of Houston. So it's unclear to what extent Houston Methodist's decision to fire 150 unvaccinated medical workers exacerbated the uh, nursing crisis. But John Miltimore says, for perhaps obvious reasons, hospital officials have been mum on the issue. What we know is that Houston hospitals did not abruptly fire 100, the, the Houston hospitals that did not abruptly fire 150 employees struggled to deal with the COVID spike And in some cases, people died as a result. So it's safe to presume that Houston Methodist's decision to fire 150 employees a few weeks before the Delta variant arrived in force surely didn't make the situation any better and probably made it much worse. Now, some may be tempted to think, well, Houston Methodist was able to quickly replace the workers they lost. Evidence suggests this is unlikely. Apart from the broader shortage, the frontline nurses are burned out. We are all tired of this. Nurses are tired of this. Texas Nurses Association CEO Cindy Zolniriak wrote in a recent public letter that Houston Methodist Hospital didn't intend to exacerbate its shortage of hospital staff goes without saying. But John Miltimore says it's also an important reminder about what economists call the COBRA effect. Every human decision brings about consequences, intended ones and unintended ones. Unintended consequences are so common, economists often call them cobra problems, after an interesting historical event in India that occurred when the British Empire tried to eradicate cobras by putting out a bounty on them. Can you guess what happened? I'll tell you in a nutshell. People started bringing cobras into the city so they could turn them in for bounties. It's all about incentives. So when hospital administrators set their policy, you get vaccinated or lose your job, their goal was to increase vaccination rates of hospital staff. But the unintended consequence was a shortage of nurses and other hospital workers during a deadly pandemic. 
John Miltimore says in 2020, political leaders around the world said yes to the question of should coercive means be employed to achieve certain desired health care outcomes? And if so, to what extent? Well, these political leaders said yes last year, and the results were disastrous. Now, a year later, private companies are playing a different version of the same game. Take the vaccine or get fired. So like the lockdown champions of 2020, he says corporate leaders no doubt believe their action is moral, proper, and will achieve the desired result. But as the Cobra effect reminds us, focusing strictly on desired outcomes and ignoring potential unintended outcomes, that's a good way to get bit. Got a link to this in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. You really should check this out for yourself. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. Quick shout out to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, located in St. George, Utah. Patriot Home Mortgage, of course, is an equal housing opportunity lender. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. And if you are looking for a home loan, as in your home shopping, you found something you like, and you need to get an offer in on that thing quickly, these are the folks you need to talk to. Lots of experience. They know the ins and outs of what lenders and borrowers need. You can contact Heather by calling 435-703-4522, or you can visit her office at 619 South Bluff Street in St. George. That's the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Well, you know, one of the toughest things that a lot of us are facing today is a very clear realignment in our relationships with the people around us. I mean, I, I see a lot of people lamenting this. I lament it myself because I see it happening. And I found this beautiful essay from Alan Stevo on how it's okay and natural to part friends or part paths with friends at a time such as this. But you might like his take on it. And it starts with this very simple sentiment. Not everyone wants what you want as badly as you do. Alan Stevo says not everyone will walk through life alongside you on your entire walk through life. And about this, there's no need to be sentimental or pained or vengeful. It's okay to triage a relationship, especially in such dire times, and to focus on that which most reflects your values. He says most of us have lived for many years in an era of great temporal luxury and comfort in which time was seen as cheap and leisure was seen as the goal of life. We have a wide array of society who've ceased to provide any economic value and are promised a life of leisure after only 20, 30, or 40 years of work. There's this preposterous notion we call retirement and that this era seems deems an ideal owed to everyone eventually in life, a virtually, virtually sociopathic disconnect from providing worth to those around you. Now, Alan Stevo says society has never promised such a decadent and debilitating thing as a 40, 50, or 60-year period of leisure to the general public by doing work that you are not called to do. Actually, I take that back. He says such toxicity is tied to the idea that if you sacrifice doing work that you are not called to do and you put up with it long enough, well, then you never have to be a net contributor to anything in any way again. And he says the concept of retirement is a sign of the temporal luxury in which we lived. Ooh, he just used past tense. (laughs) Human time measured in seconds 
time in which not a moment more than this one is promised to us is cheapened by modernity's promise that a sacrifice of several decades will allow one a disconnect from all around them. But he says this is no sacrifice. It's lying to oneself and avoiding the hard questions of life in exchange for a retirement of leisure. The six to eight hours of screen time dedicated to entertainment is another example of this temporal, the temporal luxury of this era in which we've lived. Your moments matter so little that you can luxuriously spend that time in mind-numbing, spirit-assaulting entertainment. Alan Stevo says, though through recipes for living life, recipes like these and others, you can find husband and wife, parent and child cohabitating together who've hardly ever looked at each other, at least looked each other in the eye, and had a real conversation about things that matter. Rather than daily having such conversations, making life all about that which matters, the conversations about which matter are so infrequent as to be memorable events, sometimes even dramatic events, as if they were filmed on a Hollywood film stage. And he asks, can you see how twisted that is? That meaningful conversations with the people closest to you are so infrequent as to be memorable. And he says, that's no life. That is the decadence of the lie of temporal luxury becoming ingrained in one's existence and sucking the things out of each individual life, the things of life out of each individual life. So many more examples of temporal luxury exist. Of course, the bad decisions to acquiesce to the decadent temporal luxury were your own. But he says that luxury so surrounds us and is wrongly considered so natural that it becomes a life of many bad decisions made almost habitually and without thought or resistance on your part. And this is this can be how we approach that which we are raised into. When it's society-wide, and so seldom questioned, it can be hard to recognize and escape. But he says that kind of life is not natural. Natural is growing up immersed in reality from a young age, seeing an animal die at some prepubescent age, and realizing that you too will die, and that the physical experience of your spiritual being will one day come to an end. Now, many, many writers describe that experience at a young age, if allowed to live in such reality. Some people realize this at a young age. And this is natural. Alan Stevo says if one is inundated with enough Disney and any of the other and any of the many other toxic influences intended to separate you from reality, well, then one may never come to that realization. He says the lies of modernity may be with you all the way to your deathbed, a time when it becomes very hard for anyone to deny the realization that there is, in fact, no temporal luxury. A time as well when it becomes very hard to deny the existence of a creator. He says, growing up in the midst of that and being taught how normal it all is, hardly can anyone blame you when you reach a moment of crisis and you're surrounded by people, beliefs, and behaviors that have no use to a person seeking the truth. You are merely cohabitating. You're merely occupying similar geography and sharing similar hobbies together. That is the way of the world. And here's his point. He says, don't be flummoxed when your walk with a friend has reached its useful end on your journey. If reconvergence ever comes, bygone times shared together may make the reconverging of your paths all the more joyous. To some, it's an easy thing to move a mountain, but an impossible thing to change their own life. Life changes by putting complete focus on this moment and your next decision. He says this fundamental aspect of living a moral life, of asking, how can I be better, is often glossed over. 
Focusing on the role they play in their own lives can be very difficult for some. There's hardly anything else that deserves your focus than to make you the best you. Alan Stevo says, how many people I know who provide consulting services to others on how to be? How many I know who draft government policy on how people can be forced into improving their own lives? How many I know who spend their days at work trying to help others in a variety of so-called helping professions? And yet sitting at home is an unmade bed. In fact, their whole life may be a proverbial unmade bed. Their attempts to help others can so easily be a distraction from the one who they really need to be helping. That's themselves. That's the hard work in life. And, he reminds us, not everyone wants what you want as badly as you do. That's a reality that must be accepted by those who will triage out the distraction and focus in on the blessings that were meant for you, if you'll simply reach out and grab them. He says, those who don't want what you want as badly as you do may no longer want to be near you, and that's okay. Others will need to be more clearly be separated, will need to more clearly be separated from your life. And he says, that's okay too. He says, search those who want what you want as badly as you do. A motley crew, they promise to be, but a crew true to core values birthed into this place for such a time as this, brought together by the pressures of such a time as this. Suddenly, the things that uh, may have once divided you from people like this become so superficial. You want to know what's at their core. You want to set aside the temporal luxury. You want to walk together toward that which is the most pure indication of your shared values. Moments like that in which we live indeed have an ability to melt away that which is frivolous and to focus the mind on that which is needed. Life suddenly turns so very Spartan and dedicated to that which is mission critical. He says, I don't mean Spartan as it's often used by a frivolous people, lacking in luxury, austere, bleak, joyless, stark, bare, grim. He says, such synonyms are synonyms that could only come from a well-fed and inexperienced court lexicographer and the decadent culture that provides us the resources to support such a role. Decadent is a word left to us by those who were not court lexicographers by those who do not uphold the status quo. The word decadence is a word of caution from the past. It carries a warning. Decadence is that which decays. And so he urges us to triage it out. Excise the decadent. In fact, he says, ignore the hyenas as well. They've existed in every every era, the Gateses, the Fauci's, the ones who want to do you harm, the ones who want to morally compromise you so you don't question, the ones who want to demoralize you, so you don't question. They want to confuse you, so you don't question. He also says, ignore the sheep. They've existed in every era. He says, the sheep are not the problem, though. The hyenas are not the problem. The lions are the problem. And specifically, the lion that looks back at you from the mirror is the one who you need to focus on because it's the lions who've shaped all of human history. They shape it by slumbering through tough times or standing firm, awake on the prowl, assuring that their land never truly knows tough times. This is quite a motivational essay. And and the bottom line is get yourself right. I'll have a link to it in the show notes. You may perceive it as a slight kick in the seat of the pants, but I'm telling you, he's he's got something worth considering here. This is from Alan Stevo. Check it out in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. And once again, welcome back to the show. Thanks again for sticking with me thus far. I feel like I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm being a little bit strident today. And maybe it's just because uh, I'm feeling very intensely the urgency of uh, some of these messages that I'm sharing with you. I feel like we are living through truly historic times. Like it or not, this is where we find ourselves. And, you know, if, again, looking for the positive in things, you know, the day's going to come, you know, where your children's children may be asking you, hey, what was it like? What was it like to live through those times? And specifically, this is a new phrase I just learned today. What was it like during the shame wars? <laughs> Let's talk about the shame wars. And, and the, the question I want you to keep in the back of your mind is, are you going to be able to tell your children's children you were on the right side? This is from a writer who just uh, goes under the pen name of Brutus. This was published on LewRockwell.com today. And it says, we appear to be entering a period of shame wars. Those who are vaccinated and in favor of using government force to compel behavior are resorting to lowball accusations of the unvaccinated being fools, stupid, or part of an epidemic of the unvaccinated, as the president accused. They do not only seem gleeful at the prospects of using government force against the unvaccinated, they seem to want to do it today to really bring the pain. Kind of like what you're seeing in Australia right now. Now he says, on the other side, my side, we are responding with what I call a righteous counter-shame campaign against those in favor of using government force to compel behavior. He says, my side, the right side of history, accused the other side of being like the Nazis. They are. Or like Stalin. They are. Or like Mao. They are. We try to appeal to their remaining conscience, but sadly there doesn't seem to be much left. Their fear of a 97 to 99.8% survivable pathogen has done them in. They've crossed over to the dark side, sacrificing their conscience along the way. They've lost their humanity. They become the predator, hunting down the unclean, verminous, squalid, untouchable, unvaccinated. So while hoping there might be a shred of decency left in the minds of the supporters of government force against innocent people, and in the spirit of charity, he says, I have a favor to ask, a plea, really. Since for the moment you hold all the power in government, media, and entertainment, can you at least tell us how far you intend to go? Like, are you okay with murdering us? Or perhaps you just want to put us in camps like the subhumans you apparently believe we are. He says, I'd like to get my affairs in order if you would be so kind to us subhumans. Watching how me and my family are described by policy leaders, spokesmen, and sociopaths on Twitter, he says, I now feel firsthand what blacks must have felt like as a slave owner zeroed in on them at the market. They must have hoped that they got a good master. Or if you're a supporter of government discrimination, will you be a good master to us who believe we can survive COVID-19 with our natural immune system? Or, he says, I now better understand how the Native Americans must have felt when they began the Trail of Tears, or how the Japanese must have felt, and how they wished they could change the shape of their eyes so as not to catch the attention of whites who wanted to put them in internment camps. Now, Brutus says, oh, please, don't parrot. How dare you? It's not the same. He says, it is the same. I now understand legal, constitutional discrimination like I never did before. I now see that to millions, freedom is the disease, not COVID. 
a disease to be eradicated, expunged from the vaccinated, a booster-driven new way of life. After all, who needs a natural immune system when we have Pfizer and Moderna? Sadly, he says this pro-use of government force community use, includes rather conservatives and Christians like Franklin Graham. Perhaps what we're learning is that these conservatives and Christians were really just liars when they claimed to support freedom. In reality, he says, I now understand them to be just another version of the slave owner with no hesitation to use the whip of government to quell their fears of a pathogen with a 97 to 99.8% survival rate. Obey or die. Obey or lose your job. Obey or no restaurants, NBA games, movies, perhaps groceries or education for you. Obey or in the camp. Obey or we will force the needle in your arm. So to to those who have the desire and ability to use government force against the unvaccinated, he asks, can you help a brother out? At least tell us how far you intend to go. Wow. Now that could start some conversations, don't you think? (laughs) I don't know, man. Maybe I don't want to know the answer. Because somehow I I suspect that the answer is going to be, we will have to do whatever it takes which has pretty much been the uh, justification offered by every totalitarian regime in history. I'm sure Stalin, you know, was thinking of that too. Well, how far do we have to go? We've got to get these kulaks in order. I guess we'll just have to starve them out. And so he did. And the Holodomor starved tens of millions of people. I'm sure the, the final solution penciled out by Nazi scientists and Nazi political leaders. How much must we do? We did what we had to do, you know, in order to to save the fatherland, including putting people in camps, working them to death, gassing them, disposing of them like so many pieces of of refuse. I haven't even touched on, you know, Chairman Mao's great leap forward and all the people who suffered and died under that reworking of society. How far do you intend to go? And, you know, as, as stark as that sounds, I totally understand people, you know, there are a lot of good people who would be like, well, I don't, I don't support that kind of stuff, but I really think you should do it. And I think your employer ought to be able to, you know, twist your arm and your employer should be a mechanism by which this government mandate can be enforced indirectly by government, but nonetheless tying it to your ability to earn a living. It just has to be headed in the same direction, and you will arrive at totalitarianism. And I I truly question how many people see that for what it is. I'm having quite the gut check these days, because what I see shaping up is, is making it pretty clear to me that we are approaching a time where because of my principles, not because I know everything and because I'm right and everybody else is wrong, but because of what I the truth that I've committed to, the truth that I have understand that's been revealed to me and that I am willing to, you know, make a part of who I am is going to require me to be pushed further and further to the margins of society. You know, I don't want to be there. I, I'm, a, I'm a person who, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm not so much an extrovert as it may sound like, on, you know, despite the fact I'm talking pretty much all the time, you know, on this program, but I love to be around people. And I see that uh, I'm right now moving on a path that is going to land me squarely as a pariah who uh, I think I will be below homeless people 
at the rate that this is going. And that does not appeal to me. But I also have my conscience to think about. And I don't want to sound dramatic, so you know, we don't need to cue the Hollywood you know, music here, the sad violins, but I would rather die with my freedom intact and my conscience at peace than sell my soul in a buyer's market for the possibility of you know, eking out a little bit more existence, but under the thumb or under the lash of some slave master that I don't want to live under. I think about Vin Soprinowitz, who wrote for the uh, Las Vegas uh, Review Journal. I don't know if he still does, but the guy was a, an amazing newspaper columnist. And he talked about how um, if you were on your deathbed, if you had your grandchildren and your great-grandkids surrounding you as you were on your deathbed, and he says, just for the sake of argument, suppose you lived through the Third Reich. Would you want to tell them, well, you know, the choice was between the Nazis and the communists, and frankly, the communists seemed really bloodthirsty, so uh, we went with the Nazis, and, you know, it was terrible, but uh, just I had to choose the lesser of two evils. I had to go along, you know, I had to make that choice. Is that what you would want to tell them, or would you want to tell your descendants, I would not be a part of either of these totalitarian ideologies? And yes, I was hated, I was spit upon, I was beaten, I was jailed, I was punished. But I wanted my life to be living proof that not every German citizen would go along with such ideas or ideals. I know for some folks, you know, the fact that you even brought up the Nazis, you know, now you're invoking Godwin's law, everything's about Hitler... I'm just saying we have a similar decision in front of us, you and I. And I believe that there will come a day, sometime far, you know, away in the halls of eternity, where we are going to come to terms with the decisions we made at this pivotal time. I would really like life to be easy and people to get along and to be liked and accepted by a majority of people. I don't know if I'm going to be able to be true to my principles and have those things. In fact, I'm pretty sure I can't. That's a tough decision. But I'd rather have that peaceful conscience and know that at least I did my part. What will you say? This is The Brian Hyde Show.